I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hope and Fresh on Agora. Welcome to the Agora Podcast Network, a marketplace where talented podcasters and curious listeners meet. I'm Steve. Along with being a member of Agora, I'm host of the History of the Papacy podcast. What you're going to listen to today is a collaboration with fellow Agora podcaster Tom of the American Biography podcast. Tom approached me and said he had a good friend who was also a journalist for the New Jersey Star-Ledger. Tom's friend, Steve Sterling, officially covered the visit of Pope Francis to the United States in 2015 for the New Jersey Star-Ledger, his newspaper. This episode briefly explores the background on the history of papal visits to the United States. 
We then interview Steve Sperling to get a boots-on-the-ground description of the events of the papal visit by a journalist who was actually present at this historic visit. I hope you enjoy the episode. We really thank Steve big time for doing this episode with us. It was really a, it was a ton of fun, and it was awesome. So I hope you enjoy the episode as much as we did making it. If you have any questions or comments, definitely let us know through the Agora website, agorapodcastnetwork.com. You can email us a brand new Reddit, Twitter, and everything else. So thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to Pope and Fresh, a special crossover podcast featuring the history of the papacy and American biography podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Pope Francis's recent visit to the United States. I'm Tom Daly, creator and host of American Biography, and my co-host for today is the history of the papacies, Steve Guerra. Say hello, Steve. Hi, thanks for uh, putting this all together, Tom. Oh, I'm I'm super, super excited about it. Um, you know, really glad to have been handed this opportunity to be able to work with them. You know, I've, you know, how was I ever really going to connect our show to yours? I didn't know how, but Pope Francis went ahead and you know, cleared that issue up for us and gave us this opportunity. Thank you, Pope Frank. Yes. Before we get started, we thought it might be interesting to give a little background about the history of the diplomatic relations between the United States and Holy See. For those not familiar, the Holy See both refers to an ecclesiastical jurisdiction as well as a diplomatic entity encompassing the Catholic Church and the papacy with its headquarters in Vatican City, but extended to the Pope's other temporal hold, otherwise known as the Papal States, over which he is the sovereign, an area at one time which encompassed most of Italy. The United States first established consular relations with the Holy See as early as 1797. However, this does not denote official diplomatic relations. Rather, the classification refers to commercial relations protected by commercial agents called consuls. And it wasn't until 1848 that official diplomatic relations were established, and even then it was not on an ambassadorial level. President Polk appointed and the Senate confirmed a charge d'affaires to represent the United States at the Vatican. This lower diplomatic designation was because there was a worry that a full diplomatic mission might in some way be a violation of the Constitution's establishment. Nevertheless, this would be the status quo until 1868, when Congress did an about-face and refused to appropriate funds for the embassy in Rome in response to mounting anti-Catholic sentiment in the United States. This was the result of a dramatic increase in the rate of immigration to the United States in, the, in these years, with the majority of the newcomers hailing from Ireland, France, Italy, and Spain, all Catholic nations, which helped produce a level of nativist pushback. The lack of official communication was reinforced when just two years later, the Kingdom of Italy conquered Rome in 1870, eliminating the Papal States and creating a cloud of confusion around the nature of the papacy's existence that the Italians themselves didn't figure out until the 1929 Lateran Treaty, which created an independent Vatican City. Despite the lack of official diplomatic relations, Woodrow Wilson, who was the first sitting president to travel abroad during his term of office, also became the first president to visit the Vatican when he met Benedict XV there in 1919. And that would pretty much be it until 1939, when FDR appointed a personal representative to meet with Pius VII, though it was stressed that this representative was being sent to the Pope 
and not to the Holy See. However, what the difference is practically speaking is negligible. In 1951, Truman tried to formalize relations and nominated a full ambassador to represent the United States at the Vatican. However, the Senate took no action and Truman withdrew the nomination. Neither Eisenhower nor Kennedy utilized personal representatives to the Vatican, nor did they attempt to resume relations, but relations turned a corner in 1959 when Eisenhower visited the Vatican himself and since, each succeeding president has continued the practice. During Johnson's presidency, Paul VI became the first pontiff to visit the United States, which doubled as the first papal visit to the United Nations in 1965. The biggest boon to relations came following the 1984 Concordat between Italy and Pope John Paul II, which the U.S. State Department decided brought sufficient clarity to the nature of the Holy See and the Senate confirmed the ambassador to the Vatican. I think it bears mentioning that John Paul II and Reagan were already Cold War allies by the time this occurred, and resumption of diplomatic relations at this moment smacks of good old-fashioned realpolitik. John Paul II's papacy bestrode the resumption of relationships, and it was during his tenure in St. Peter's chair that bilateral relations really took off. John Paul II visited the United States seven times during his reign and met multiple times with four U.S. presidents, Carter, Reagan, Clinton, and George W. Bush. With his recent trip to the United States, Francis was the fourth pope to meet with the U.S. president during a visit to the United States, as well as the fourth time a pope addressed the United Nations. And Francis was the third pontiff received at the White House. But, despite not containing any historical firsts, Francis's recent visit certainly had a fresh new feel to it. So for more about this, we'd like to turn things over to Steve Sterling to talk a little bit about what he witnessed while covering the pontiff's visit. Okay, so joining us uh, for today's discussion is uh, Steve Sterling. He's a real-life professional journalist uh, who reported on the Philadelphia leg of the pontiff's recent visit for the Star-Ledger newspaper uh, out of New Jersey. Steve, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, Well, we are absolutely thrilled to have you. So, you saw the Pope. You were there, you witnessed it, the throngs, his, his triumphal procession, if you will. I did, I did. Do so you want it. to tell us a little bit about that? Uh, sure, yeah. So, I was uh, in, in Philadelphia for, for the Papal Mass on the, it was the, the, the last major event that he held uh, in the city. Um, so, it was, it was, you know, most of my experience was kind of caught up in getting to and from there. Uh, which was kind of funny. There was a lot of security uh, for this event. Uh, Secret Service was running it. Um, And uh, so, I mean, I had to go through multiple security checkpoints. They had to screen my entire background. I had to give the Vatican my social security number and, uh, you know, all of my social media accounts to make sure that I hadn't said anything, you know, in poor taste about... uh, Pope Francis uh, in the past. Uh, so after months of screening, I was eventually cleared, uh, and uh, they gave me uh, you know, press credentials for for the event, uh, which I had. Uh, so I made my way to Philadelphia, and it was it was sort of a, a surreal experience to say the least, because you know they had cleared out most of downtown Philadelphia. There was no uh, traffic going through the through the area, so it was sort of like this weird 
you know, sort of dystopian city with like pockets of people moving around. Because when I arrived, I wasn't anywhere near where where any of the uh, the papal activity was at that point. Uh, but you know, you know, once there, you had to go through another series of security screenings uh, to get to you know where you might have a chance to see the Pope. And I got there on the Saturday uh, out ahead of it. So at at that point, I believe he was at the seminary at the time, but. Uh, I had to cross sort of the the papal path in order to get to the house I was staying at. Uh, and it, it so happened that he was doing a parade uh, nearby. and uh, or that, so I had to wait and uh, he did he did stream past me once. Uh, he, um, but you know that was sort of all of my experience for the first day. But the papal mass the next day was uh, was was certainly you know I, I don't think I'm ever going to get an experience like that again. It was sort of it was it was uh, you know a pleasure to report on because it was just uh, it was it was just the the magnitude of it was 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 so massive. Uh, you know it, I'm not sure if they ever put a, a total figure on it, but I believe they thought it was close to a million people were there for that. Um, and you know, it was just it was just the sea of people. And the thing that struck me most in talking to some of those people was just, uh, uh, you know, how well behaved and you know, just overall grateful they were to be there. Uh, you know, it's there's there's something you know I've I've covered you know religious events in the past and you know certainly Christian and or Catholic events in the past, but there seems to be a there's there's a different feeling that seemed to revolve around Pope Francis that, you know, was sort of echoed in everybody that I spoke to there, uh, which was sort of fascinating to me. Yeah. You know, and, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I was like, yeah, and that that's sort of what the uh, the feeling behind putting this show together was. That's why we called it Pope and Fresh. I mean, there's, there's something so different about people's reactions to this pontiff. It feels like to me, um, you know, obviously we were, I believe, in college still. No, no, we weren't. When... Um, when Benedict uh, visited, it was at 2008, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I believe, and it was just an all-around different feeling. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, you know, I, I had, you know, I started my professional career by that point. I, I, but even, you know, there, there was never any of the same feeling surrounding, you know, Pope Benedict in any of my dealings as a reporter. Uh, this was this was certainly different. We talked to a number of people that actually said that they came out to Philadelphia because, uh, you know, Pope Francis had reinvigorated their faith. Uh, and that, you know, they were, they had been sort of, you know, one, one foot in and one foot out, uh, Catholics and, and this sort of, and they, they were sort of indifferent to the whole thing after, you know, what was, uh, several years of, uh, you know, scandal essentially for, for the church. I mean, that's, that's the headline that they, they, they had, uh, for them. And, you know, this sort of reinvigorated their faith and, you know, re reminded them of, you know, you know, why they had, uh, taken up Catholicism in the first place. Um, the people that you met along the way, would you say they were on the younger end, the older end? It was really, it was really diverse. I mean, there was, you know, not only like in, in terms, and that, that goes across all spectrums, whether it be, uh, racially, you know, culturally age wise. I mean, there were a lot, there were a lot of uh, larger groups that had a lot of young people in them. Uh, of course, I mean, you, you had the, uh, the Pope baby, uh, there were, several of the Pope babies that, that were there, but, you know, it, it did cut across, you know, you know, sort of, uh, all socioeconomic boundaries. I mean, my favorite image of the entire thing was probably, uh, some nuns playing football with some Philadelphia Eagles fans, uh, which was 
you know, one of those things, I, again, I don't anticipate I'll see anytime soon. But it was, it was a really good cross-section. That, you know, that was one of the other things that, that struck me about the crowd there, yeah. Well, I think Francis probably would be really, really grateful to hear that. I'm sure he sees, he seems to see himself as a consensus builder. Um, I, I think he might, Steve Guerra, you might have more of an insight into this, but he, he does seem to have kind of a mission of renewal about him. That was one thing I was wondering that kind of ties into that is, um, would you say, I mean, I would imagine most of the people were Catholics, but were there other people who weren't? Catholics who are still interested in seeing what was going on? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, we talked to a couple of people through the course of the event that, you know, said, you know, they weren't even Catholic. There was just something so moving about uh, him and, uh, you know, what he brought, what he has brought to the papacy uh, so that they came out just just to be a part of that experience. And, and you know, a lot of those people who were outside of the faith that uh, we talked to, you know, said it was a it was a truly moving experience, you know, even though uh, it, it isn't, you know, a part of their their, their chosen faith, uh, you know, hierarchy. I mean, I myself can can sort of attest to that. I, I'm fascinated by Pope Francis. You know, I, I myself am a non-believer, um, but yet I, I find him incredibly enigmatic and magnetic. You know, so I, I can sort of testify to how some of the people who are, are coming out to see him just out of the sheer curiosity, you know, you know, may be feeling. I just had a couple of questions, or oh, if sure, you see, wanted to talk about the, um, the mass in the, um, was it in the Eagles Stadium or the Phillies? Uh, neither, actually. It was uh, it was in front of the uh, Philadelphia Museum of Art, uh, so it was outdoors. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's a the Benjamin Franklin Parkway runs sort of for a long stretch directly in front of that. Uh, so essentially, they had people lined up going straight down the Benjamin Franklin Park, Parkway, like into the heart of the city. And the Pope was on a stage out in front of the uh, of the art museum. Did he run up the steps like Rocky or? Did no, no. Unfortunately, <laughs> we did. We did not. We did not get that uh, that joy. So, like, where, how, where were you sitting in relation? Because the, the um, Benjamin Franklin, it starts <clears throat> um, like right on the border, kind of. Uh, well, it's all in Center City, but the bench, mm -hmm. and um, so it starts, and people were like, it was seating all the way, or was it crowd? Oh, it's all standing room only, uh, but. Uh, for for the most part, I was actually seated. So you know, in the setup that they had, uh, the stage was sort of placed, uh, you know, more or less directly in front of the stairs of the museum. Uh, it was a massive stage, uh, and directly in front of that, they had probably a couple of thousand seats, uh, and then they had uh, press risers, uh, which were you know basically you know bleachers going up uh, with a you know a slot down the middle that could allow the the, the crowd to see in. And they had video screens and stuff like that everywhere. So I was seated in one of the press risers. Uh, so, you know, it would be, I guess if you were thinking about it in terms of a stadium or something like that, I'd be in the in the, the front of the lower bowl. Did you get a feeling of actually being in church or was it a whole different experience? Uh, there were points. I mean, it was certainly unique, uh, you know, but, you know, the I, I wanted to. Two of the, the most powerful things to me, just about the experience in general, were sort of church-like. Uh, you know, I was blown away at, at the points of meditation during, uh, during, during the sermon. It was uh, jarring how quiet nearly a million people could be. 
Uh, and there was so much reverence uh, given to that, uh, to the people that were there, uh, that you could hear, you know, I'd, at, at points like that, I'd go out and I'd sort of watch the crowd, uh, you know, behind, behind me. And, you know, you could hear sounds from like a passing, you know, mo police motorcycle or something like that. It just went dead silent. And then, uh, you know, the, when they uh, delivered communion, uh, that was that was incredible, and it felt very. I, it, it felt like being in church, but it was like no. It was like no church that I've ever been in. You know, they had. I think it was more than fifteen hundred volunteer priests uh, go out, and each of them uh, were sort of under a, a a golden and ivory umbrella, and they sort of walked down the Benjamin Franklin Parkway um, because the the portion of the roadway was actually open to allow the Pope to come to and from and to allow emergency vehicles and stuff like that. So they walked down in, in pairs, you know, these, just this stream of these golden umbrellas, uh, to hand out communion to the entire crowd, which was, which was certainly super powerful. And, and it had that, you know, church-like religious feel to it. It's just, you know, it's, you know, it's not your, it wasn't your average Sunday. I'd say not. That sounds like quite, quite a day. Mm -hmm. um, Steve, when you were talking to people, it seemed like um, when I was reading in the newspaper or reading like online, and I have some friends in Philadelphia that they were kind of mad that um, like everything was so shut down. Did you get any like negative feelings from people that, um, you know, the city was on such lockdown? Well, you know, I think I think there's a difference in how people that came there viewed that and how people that lived there viewed that. Uh, you know, I have a lot of friends that live in Philadelphia. Most, and I wanted to in going. I was like, oh, I'm going to be down in Philadelphia for a few days. I'll, I'll meet up with some people. Everybody left. It was like nobody wanted any who was from Philadelphia that I know wanted any part of that. Uh, so unless they were, I mean, I, I think people were a little annoyed by by that if, if they weren't participating in the festivities, it, it was probably more of a hindrance than anything else. Uh, but from the people that actually, from the pilgrims themselves, uh, you know, I didn't get uh, a sense of that. I mean, and if you were part of it, you know, security aside, and, and things, you know, given the, the magnitude of the event, they probably went as smoothly as they could. You know, I think they had planned for a lot more people than actually came. I think they were planning for upwards of two million people, and it ended up short of a million. Uh, so, you know, it, it you know, there was there was such a uniqueness to the experience. I mean, because, you know, once you were through security, you were literally walking down the center of some of the largest, you know, some of the most major intersections in the city of Philadelphia unencumbered. Uh, and, you know, there was just sort of a unique feel around that that I think, uh, you know, people people seem to enjoy. So, I, you know, I didn't get I didn't get much of a sense from the people that were there. Uh, that they were they were annoyed by the shutdown, but I cannot speak for for the people who lived there and perhaps fled the city because it was a massive operation. Did um like were shops open? Could you get a Tony Luke sandwich or um? It it was sort of hit or miss in the, in that front. And you know when we when when we went out to eat, you know there was a sense of you know a, a sort of a letdown, I guess, because if you were on the periphery of the of the of the Pope zone, uh, you know. It, it would often take, you know, uh, think just short of an act of God to get people to go to your restaurant because they'd have to go through so much security. If it wasn't on their way, then, you know, a lot of restaurants and, and shops, you know, lost basically all of their foot traffic. Uh, and then it was, you know, in the zone itself. I mean, it was sort of, you know, hit or miss. I mean, you had some there was some price gouging that went on the first day. <laughs> 
uh, I believe, and like and Duncan Jonas and a couple of other v vendors jacked up their prices. Uh, and then when they were called out for it, everybody was giving out free coffee or coffee for a dollar or something like that. But uh, you know, uh, <laughs> it was gouging, paper yeah, price yeah. gouging. <laughs> yeah, uh, but you know, overall, uh, you know, it it you know it it was sort of hit or miss in terms of shops and restaurants and stuff like that. So while Francis's visit seems like it's been very successful overall, it has not been without some. It seems that unlike previous visits, um, where the pontiff has seemingly been more in line with cultural conservatives, and this trip, it's the American left that's really embracing him. Where there's almost an uncharacteristic pushback uh, by conservative leaders in the United States against some of the things that Francis is choosing to highlight was there any feel steve did you get any feel for that in philadelphia you know i i didn't it might have been you know a consequence of you know what i was covering but you know there didn't seem like politics wasn't one of the uh you know the sort of the issues that i came across while i was there which which i thought was was interesting because you know there is he is you know very a very different pope than uh, his predecessors, uh, based on you know some of the, the the opinions that he's had and he's put out there, but you know it wasn't it wasn't anything that I really encountered uh, during uh, during my trip there, and you know it's it's um, which which was you know given the political climate of today, which was a little surprising to me. Well, that's good. I mean, it's it's refreshing that that type of interaction could still happen in the United States when it feels like it may never be able to at times. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and that certainly is different from the perception coming from his visit to Washington, which was much more overtly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it, it, it's it definitely something that stood out to me just, you know, for a lot of the reasons that that you just mentioned. I mean, I, I was sort of it, it's sort of strange that it's an awkward experience to to run across so many people that are unilaterally grateful for an experience and and friendly. I mean, they were thanking people were thanking all of the city workers that they saw. You know, a couple of our photographers got thanked for taking pictures. And, you know, there was just there was no there was no sense of animosity at all or, uh, you know, polarization or anything like that, which is, you know, sort of a. You know, it's it's a weird thing to say, but it, it, it was a bizarre experience, I guess, for, for lack of a better word. Bizarre, but but refreshing. Yes, yes. Sir. But some people haven't been quite so calm and reflective. Fox News, for instance, has been a vocal critic of the positions that, that Francis uh, has, you know, taken on things like uh, global climate change, income inequality, and several other, you know, poignant topics uh, in the United States today to be the one to answer this question, kind of opening it up to the floor for sort of a group discussion here. What do we think about this? This is a new strange alignment in the United States. The liberal pope is something that you know hasn't been experienced since the 1960s. Steve Guerra? I think it's kind of strange that, um, well, I, the conservative and progressive kind of get all mixed up together because, uh, you know, you could he could be sort of liberal on some political issues, but he seems fairly conservative as far as the religious issues go. He um, hasn't really said anything about the ordination of women, and I think he may have said that he was against it. Um, liturgically, he seems fairly conservative. I've seen kind of mixed reviews on that, but he's also, he hasn't budged on um, 
abortion and he's shown that he's uh maybe a has it leans a little bit um not traditional on the marriage about um uh divorce and that sort of thing but that seemed like something that was coming down the pipe anyways so i think it's he's kind of a tough guy to wrap your mind around yeah it seems like people don't want to don't want to see him as a gray character it's very much a you know you're with us on our side or you're against us in our side you know the it seems like more liberal america is just going crazy for the fact that he's talking about poverty the environment and completely ignoring and turning a blind eye to the fact that a lot of the positions that he holds are still very socially conservative and vice versa the conservatives are are very upset about some of the positions he's taking on climate control uh, climate change and poverty but completely ignoring the fact that he's still in line with them on issues near and dear to them i think that it's um it just is it, it it's really made me think a lot that the things that you think that the left-wing blogosphere would just blow their stacks about they've been pretty quiet about and the conservatives um for the most part, we're pretty quiet about it. I wonder if it is, you know, the religious experience has transcended the political to some degree. Well, I mean, I think that I think that's what the Pope would want above all else. But he's at the same time, he's oh, encyclical encyclicals. He's taken a pretty hard line stance and his encyclical effects. He's even talking about the carbon cycle, um, you know, climate change, the implications being that it is man made, you know, things that are pretty dogmatically uh, not that are pretty dogmatically opposite from his traditional base in the United States, which is the conservative. And there seems to be a lot of interesting with his um, it, that you um, said ecumenical as well with his relations with other churches. It's really thrown a monkey wrench in a lot of the um, a lot of the different um, relationships. Like he's really tight with the um, patriarch of Constantinople. Um, he's a big um, environmentalist activist too, and um, but like other pa- uh, Orthodox patriarchs have kind of kept Francis at arm's length, and I think similar with the Anglicans and some of the Protestants, he's shown or Francis has shown an ability to get close with them, but they don't want to get too close with them. So that's another dimension to um, that he is. He's rattling a lot of cages. That idea of reaching out across faiths is, and while I, while I have a papal specialist, you know, with me here, oh, don't go too far. <laughs> what are there any any realistic expectations of you know that great <clears throat> schism ever closing? I think um, there probably is not in our lifetimes because I just don't think that those things move that fast. But there's some there's some serious divides that between say the the catholics and the um protestants and the catholics and the um the orthodox you know that's including like all of them the copts etc there's some pretty big gaps in there that um i think if you were getting to the point where you wanted to that you're going to say that they're going to be in full communion that would take a long long time to iron out there's real you know there's a political element to it that's you know a thousand years old but there's also some serious dogmatic issues especially that have cropped up since vatican two um actually vatican one that would be difficult to iron out anytime soon 
But at least the process has started. And I mean, I don't know if that's really an end goal for anybody. It doesn't doesn't you know affect me in any way whatsoever. But is that something that is the idea of a one universal church something that believers are invested in anymore? I mean, I think they're invested in it. All of them, I would say, are invested in it in theory. And I think now with everything that's going on in the Middle East and you have, um, you know, like the Syrians are in big trouble, you know, they're, you know, a lot of Christian groups are getting, um, you know, you know, almost getting eradicated by ISIS. I think there's a bigger push to have closer relationships so that everybody isn't cutting each other out in the knees to actually help people. And maybe that's something that um, Francis is bringing about is that, you know, the people are actually getting harmed over there and, you know, and in Africa and other places. So why are we, you know, why are Christians attacking each other when they really should be helping people who are in harm's way? So there's a theoretical and a practical um, purpose for some sort of um, unity. I've heard it said that the Pope's mission was to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And he has put a pretty sharp critique forward against uh, the morality of the marketplace and for putting humans in service of the economy as opposed to uh, the uh, economy in the service of, if that may. Now, the Catholic Church obviously uh, has, is, is taking a position on poverty that you could say is really as old as the institution itself. And Jesus in the scriptures certainly took a fairly anti-wealth stance. Um, so you could say that this is more of an originalist position that Francis is taking on the issue. But it, it's certainly bringing him into sharp political conflicts within the United States, and particularly with his traditional base to come. Is there a danger that the Pope runs in doing things like this? Does he, does he, does he come close to losing legitimacy? Putting that out there for anybody. I think the biggest um, thing that the, that he has to worry about, and that the thing that comes up with um, pretty uh, clearly to me is, you know, like um, the Vatican. I mean, it's just practically dripping with gold, and I think he has to show in some way that he's putting his money where his mouth is. He got um, rid I, of the big crown, though, didn't he? Isn't that one of his first things? The 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 triple level crown, didn't he? I don't think. I think Gucci the guy, shoes are gone. The the guy before John Paul II, his name escapes me. I think it was Paul something to, um, as well. He stopped using the crown, and he um, Francis doesn't wear the fancy shoes like um, Benedict did. I don't even think Benedict's shoes were like a name brand; they were um, handmade for him. But um, I think he's shown some of those things. But I, you know, that's almost a throwaway. Yeah, they're you know he's not buying. $2,000 shoes. But what if, you know, it's what's he doing when there's practical things? I mean, you know, that that there's paintings in the Vatican that are probably would sell on the open market for millions of dollars. You know, that's when I visited the Vatican a couple of years ago, it, that was the first thing that hit me after going through like two miles of museum. It's like, wow, there's a lot of wealth here, like a ridiculous amount of wealth. So you think that's sort of hypocrisy? I don't know if hypocrisy is too far. You know, if that's maybe too far, but I think it's something that a lot of people are going to say. I don't know. I wouldn't necessarily say it because that is a cultural and that a cultural legacy and that has value. But I think that that's something that's out there is that the Catholic Church has a lot of money that they're not necessarily spending it 
as well as they could be. I mean, I think that I think that's a solid point. Um, you know, I, I think it hypocrisy, as you say, might not be the right word, but it certainly has has that sort of oh come on, are you aware of what you're talking about? Quality about it, similar to as when a church where individuals don't marry starts talking about you know, marriage issues. I think they kind of run the same risk. And, and I do think when they start weighing in on these things where they don't necessarily appear to have real knowledge about, they do run the risk, particularly in the United States, which is not overwhelmingly Catholic, of losing that that moral voice. That, that was one of the things that I did notice regarding the papal visit, uh, you know, while I was in Philadelphia is, you know, there was a big, you know, a meeting with the uh, with the victims of sexual abuse. Um, while it, it it is an example of saying the right things, uh, the instant reaction that I did see come across from a lot of groups is, you know, sitting down and talking to people for twenty minutes doesn't really do anything. Is you know you have to do a little bit more than just saying the right things. Uh, so I think there is some of that there, uh, and it is an issue they could potentially face where it's it's all well and good to to sort of reinvigorate the image of the papacy and to reinvigorate, you know, and to provide a fresh face, um, you know, how far does that go? That's that's a good point, because speaking to the, the abuse scandal, <clears throat> as far as I know, Cardinal Law still has a cushy position in the Vatican. That's uh, He was the bishop, I'm sorry, he was the cardinal in Boston during when that Boston sex abuse scandal broke. Um, basically, John Paul... The second took him into the Vatican, where he's been living comfortably since, after basically covering up for a number of years. So, yeah, if you have this face, how far does that go? Yeah, that's going to be the telling point to see how, um, you know, does the um, bloom come off the rose after he's um, had to really deal with these hard issues? I mean, it's happened many times with other political figures that... Um, you know, they come in strong, but then get worn down. Well, he himself has, has predicted that his papacy isn't going to be a pretty long one. And I think that's, you know, not, nothing against him personally. I think he recognizes, like everyone else, that he's a man in his late 70s and that, you know, Father Time is undefeated. So it, it might be that ultimately, despite the enthusiasm that he generates, he might not end up leaving the, the type of strong legacy that we might think he might today, because he might, in the end, just be a, a transitional figure. And it, it could be his legacy that if he does, with between him and Benedict, set a precedent that you don't hang on until the end, leaving, you know, strong instead of um, having things string out like it, like they did with John Paul II, which that didn't seem like it was a very healthy situation. No, I agree. I think it, talking about Benedict, I think that might be the highlight of his papacy was was not serving until he couldn't serve anymore. Mm -hmm. Because he seemed to be the real placeholder to me, that after somebody like John Paul II, you couldn't come in with somebody strong. And that seems to be a thing that's happened a lot in papal history is um, having a placeholder to fill the gap before you know the things are the you know the organizations ready to move on again and pick what direction it's going on now do you think there's anything anything to him being a a pontiff that was from the new world that makes his papacy different 
Did that seem like a big deal to you guys? I don't know how I felt about that, that he wasn't I, I, from old Europe. I mean, I think it. I think it's, you know, a big deal in that, you know, it's it's giving representation to an area that isn't, you know, the old stronghold of the Catholic Church and areas where they've seen a lot of growth in recent history. I mean, that's certainly not Europe and that's certainly not the United States or any, uh, you know. So, you know, I, I do think that there is some there's some amount of impact there. I mean, you know, going with somebody from, you know, a, a Hispanic speaking or a Hispanic Pope is is sort of probably energizing a base that's been growing for a long time um, and shows, you know, for, for once that the church is sort of willing to look outside the box. But I think that there's something, I don't know how significant it is, but I think that there's something to that, at least symbolically. I, I read this um, interesting thing that um, there's a lot of Italians who are upset because the Pope is obviously a worldwide figure, but he's also their local bishop. And they feel that um, in America, they, um, bishops are almost always chosen you know, from uh, the United States and bishops in Canada are chosen from Canada and almost, you know, even their locality. And they're feeling like they're kind of cut out of the whole thing that they're bishop is being selected from anybody from around the world so they're losing a voice in their own locality so there's a local issue as compared to, i mean it's a very unique um position the pope holds that he does have a specific job based in a location the city of rome and the surrounding area but then he's also a worldwide figure that's something I never once considered. That's a really interesting point. Um, but they get the Pope. Come yeah, on. yeah, I mean, right? you got to give and take a little. Yeah, your bishop is one of the three biggest individuals in the world. <laughs> I think that's a good trade-off. But it it ha it it is causing some sort of rift there that maybe, and it's something that Francis has talked about of. Um, to some degree, devolving power to to bishops and giving them more power, and um, and that's kind of, that's part of his ecumenical relations too. I think he called himself um, he didn't call himself like one of the fancier um, titles. He called himself just the Bishop of Rome or something when he was with one, some of the other one of the other major um, bishops, or he called himself the Patriarch of Rome, which is something that um, popes haven't really that hasn't been the title that they've touted in a long time so i mean you could say that it's his humility but he's also that could be a major um reorganization he's going for wow i <laughs> dusting off that old chestnut yeah patriarch of rome i yeah that's or patriarch of the west rather patriarch of the west which is yeah. i mean that is an oldie i've never even heard of it to be honest steven sterling in just a few words, what was your biggest takeaway from Pope Francis? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not I'm not a terribly religious person myself. So, I mean, it was it was sort of refreshing, I guess. I mean, that that was the, the you know, if I could encompass everything, it was that it was a refreshing experience because I've been to a lot of religious events uh, in my career, in my lifetime. Uh, and nothing Christian or Catholic that I've ever been to has had that kind of, uh, you know, good feeling around it, I guess, or, or invigorating, uh, feeling around it. You know, it's always been sort of dry. So I was sort of, I was sort of captivated by that fact, I guess, more than anything else. That's wonderful. Steve, I want to thank you so much yeah, for joining us Yeah, thank you today. so much. 
Absolutely. It was really, it was really great to have the insight that you were able to bring into this visit. Um, do you have any plugs? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, uh, at S Sterling, S S T I R L I N G. But, and if you're from New Jersey or the tri-state area, yes, you New can Jersey find, weather guy. Yeah, you can you can find me. I'm New Jersey weather guy. If you search that on Facebook, uh, and you can also find my work on NJ.com or in the Star Ledger. Fantastic. Well, Steve, thank you again, and have a great day. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.